from CNU 23 in Dallas, this is the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone back again in Dallas at the Adolphus Hotel at CNU 23. I'll bet you're shocked to hear me say that. Uh, I've got across the table for me a late addition to the podcast schedule, but someone that I was told by uh, numerous people I had to chat with at CNU, Jeff Tumlin from Nelson Nygaard. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. I really appreciate it. Um, one of the things that we wanted to talk about here locally, before we get into some of the broader work that you're doing, uh, is the is the Trinity Toll Road. I, I had Patrick Kennedy on about a month ago to talk about this. So the listeners have some background on the project. But could you just give like a maybe a brief overview and then let's talk a little bit about some of the, the struggles that you've gotten enmeshed in to one degree or another. Sure. So Dallas is busy trying to reinvent itself for you know its next century. And one of the great things that Dallas has discovered is that immediately adjacent to the downtown, they have this giant river floodway. And they've had the brilliant idea of turning that floodway into a fantastic downtown park, you know, something of uh, even greater scale than New York Central Park because Dallas likes to do things big. Right. Everything's got to be big. That's right. Yeah. And in addition to doing this fantastic park, um, they've also noticed that there is some significant congestion on a freeway segment in the downtown called the Lower Stemmons. And dating back to, you know, the 1950s highway plans for the region, there was some thought of uh, building a parallel freeway in the river floodway. So right, that, the best place to put anything. <laughs> right, so, so, uh, so that, uh, that uh, highway uh, was called the Trinity River Parkway. Um, and there was a plan that was done several years ago called the Balanced Vision Plan that got a lot of support for, you know, not doing something that was a big honking freeway in the floodway, but in fact doing something like a parkway that would support the park and also provide regional mobility. Yeah. So that got, uh, that got a lot of support and it was handed over to, um, to a bunch of professionals, each of whom did a great job looking. Okay, there, there's where we go wrong. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, you know, it was, you know, it was handed over to the, you know, the flood experts who, you know, did a great job, uh, you know, putting the flood walls in the right places to make sure that the road would be protected. And it was handed over to the highway engineers who, you know, wanted to make sure that level of service was just right at each point along the way. Right. And the balanced vision plan sort of died a death of a hundred professional yeah. staffs. The, the tyranny of the specialist came yes. to bear and uh, now... The vision's gone, and it, it functions, right, on paper. <laughs> right. It met its performance metrics. Right, 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 as defined by all of these different silos. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so the good people of Dallas took a step back and said, okay, well, that's, I don't think that's quite what we ordered. And so it became very controversial. So in a last-minute effort, uh, the mayor, Mayor Rawlings and his crew, uh, decided to call a bunch of people to Dallas and say, all right, we're, we're in the middle of our federal approvals process. Is there a way that we can, we can save this thing? Is there a way that we can achieve the goal of a great park and a parkway that serves the park um, and uh, not create yet another obstacle between the city and this great resource of our river? Right. And uh, we were skeptical. Uh, so I was one of the people that was brought out. Uh, 
and a team led by Larry Beasley. And uh, we hunkered down for uh, two week-long charrettes to see, can, 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 we, can we fix this somehow? Can we achieve the original goal of this project um, and meet the requirements of this federal approvals process that is ongoing? That, that, does, that cares more about the metrics than that necessarily cares, the, 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 the viability of it from a multidimensional way at the local level. So the federal approvals of process was being led by the Federal Highway Administration, which yeah. of course has its metrics and criteria. D- it, d- that administration has highway in its name, right? That, it sure does. Okay. Federal Highway well, that, Administration. Well, that, that clarifies things <laughs> exactly. to a degree. Uh, and then it also the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which of course has very significant concerns about protecting Dallas from uh, potential floods that you know, right. the Trinity River uh, occasionally experiences. So they, they have, you know, both clear missions, yep. um, both excellent quality people, you know, yeah, supporting yeah. the analysis, um, and also both with a very narrow view of what success means. Well, and a, a very um, easily definable set of outcomes. That's right. I mean, the world that we work in, the outcomes are, uh, at the end of the day, we understand, but... They're also less amorphous than here's the ADT, here's the here's the you know the flood zone level. Here's the, right. those are very hard metrics that are much easier to meet. Right? Is it beautiful? Yeah. <laughs> Will people like it? <laughs> right, right. 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 Will it support larger economic development? Yeah, opportunities? Yeah, I've, I've never and seen that in the, uh, the the operating procedures of the Federal Highway Administration. Right. right. It's yeah. it's tricky. Right. Right. It does. So so talk a little bit about where you think this thing evolves from this point? Because it's still, I mean, I realize I'm asking you to speculate a little bit, but obviously this has become like a big issue here. You've got a council election that is going to center a lot on a, a couple of these main issues. That's right. So, so, what, so we took a, a step back, recognizing the constraints of the federal environmental process that was ongoing when we started our work. And we asked the question, okay, this this project as it's designed this is not this is not what Dallas needs but is can we can we think about phasing this project can we build a portion of it so right. rather than building this monstrous six lane oh, okay. highway okay. can we build you know just for the time being we'll do you know two or four lanes and on this portion of it, we'll build the side on the west, and on that portion of it, we'll build the side on the east, and we'll introduce a little meander, and in the leftover space, we'll put some parking for the park, right. and we'll change the design speed, because right. that's not necessarily critical to this process. Right. And while allowing some future generation to decide to build the full honkin' freeway. Right. 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 These are some nuances that I can see... Perhaps making some sense. Mm, yeah, right? can we delete the cloverleaf interchange in the middle of the most, um, <laughs> right. what, what will be the most beloved part of the park? Right. right. And, you know, not precluded. Somebody can come in later and do that if they want. Right. Um, so uh, we suggested a bunch of modifications, again, trying to stay within the constraints of the environmental process. Yeah. Um, that got presented to the city council a week ago, got enthusiastic support from the city council. Oh, wonderful. And just uh, this week, um, the, the, uh, the projects got their final set of approvals uh, from the federal authorities, from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Okay. 
Because another significant problem that we faced was that the environmental documents for the park and for the parkway got um, linked. Ah. So while there were a lot of people here yeah. in Dallas who wanted to kill the toll road, killing the toll road also killed the park. Right. Or at least introduced another five years of delay for the park. Right. As the environmental review process needed to be started over again. Okay. Scratch. Wow. Right. Yeah. Right? So now that those approvals are in place... Um, the park is fully funded. It can move forward. And now we can make a decision about, okay, there's lots of things that we can do with this parkway. We can, we can build it as the, um, the, the planning process, the this, this so-called dream team planning process uh, presented to council a week ago. Uh, and, or we can use that as the starting point for another analysis that might, in fact, reopen the environmental process for the parkway, but not the park. Yeah. Um, we could, you know, we can still kill the whole thing. Right. And start over again. Uh, there's, right now, the city is finally free to, <clears throat> to have a more robust conversation about exactly what kind of a road is appropriate for the park um, without um, delaying the park itself. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's been interesting to me is the realization that a road serving the park. A parkway serving the park is actually a really good thing. Yeah. That this is yeah. a major facility. You know, there's going to be tons of soccer fields and things. Right. People need to bring their soccer equipment to the park and not have to walk over, you know, a 40-foot high levee in order to get there. Right. Right. Sure. And that, in fact, the driving experience in a park can also be a part of the pleasure of the park. This is a massive park. Yeah. Okay. Right? Sure. So, sure. So it's been great watching um, the, you know, Dallas community, the city council members, the activists, coming to understand the nuances yeah. that a bad road would destroy the park, but a good road could actually make the park a lot better place. Sure. So it doesn't have to be an all or nothing That's scenario. Right. We, can, we can find a way to, to make it work. It, it seems to me like when you, when you first started this conversation, you said Dallas is something along the lines of trying to figure out what it's going to be when it grows up or you made some comment like that it seems to me that this is that difficult nuance that it has almost as much cultural dimension as it does technical engineering planning kind of dimension is that is that a fair is it even more cultural dimension <laughs> it's a it's a there's a strong cultural dimension here i i've come to really love dallas yeah my, where my, are you from well, I, I was born in Los Angeles. My, oh, okay. my mother's from L.A., but my father's from Mississippi. Okay. And one of the things that I find about Dallas is that it combines the, my favorite aspects of Western culture and my favorite aspects of Southern culture and few of the things that drive me crazy about yeah. both, right? Yeah, so, okay. I, so, yep. so, so it has the sort of the audacity and the capacity for self-reinvention. Um, it has um, the openness of the West with less of its narcissism, right. I mean, particularly in California. Yeah. Um, and then it, you know, <laughs> that's an it, interesting perspective. It's very true. I, now, now that you said it, I see it. It's quite evident. Yeah. yeah. And then it has the sort of the hospitality and the good manners right. and the appreciation of subtlety right. of the South and without some of the things that, you know, annoy me about my, um, my yeah. fantastic uh, uh, relatives who live in Mississippi. Right. Right. No, true. That's, that's, that's a beautiful way to put it. Um, it's funny because I, I have a, I have an aunt who lives here. And we visit once a year. And it's, it's so, she, she grew up in Minnesota, lived in Minnesota until she was in her mid-40s and then moved here. And now is like thoroughly y'all Texan. 
and it, it, it it's it's such an easy being from the north there's such there's so many easy like cheap jokes to yeah. make but yet there is a certain um there's, there's a certain cultural warmness about the place you can walk into any room and not know a soul and quite quickly you will know most people in the room yeah and that doesn't happen in other parts of america no it doesn't in fact if 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 i could be i could i could tell a like a brief story about Minnesotan kind of culture. I gave this talk once, and it was actually over the, in North Dakota, and uh, got to the end. Are there any questions? No. I, I asked a question I knew people were thinking, answered it myself. Anybody have any questions? No. Did that three times. <laughs> and finally got to the end and realized, okay, nobody has any questions. Let's just call it a night. Everybody lined up to ask their question individually because they didn't want to ask it in front of the whole group. Yeah. You come down here and talk. They're, they're, it's not like Southern Florida where everybody's interrupting me with their own. It's not like the Northeast where they were all like, yeah, you're, you know, you're full. But, but everybody listened respectfully. But yeah. then they had a, like a really robust, nice conversation. Right. It was polite and respectful. Yes. But it was also very intense, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And very open. Very open. Yeah. 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 There was a, a, a general kind of acceptance of, um, not an acceptance of everybody's point of view, but an acceptance mm-hmm. that everybody has a point of view. That's right, and uh, and and the good manners part kicks in, where you know people are just there's not while there's some you know jerkish behavior here. Yeah, it's so much smaller than it is on the you know the coastal cities that I work in. Like, you know, people are open, <laughs> very true, open, and will argue, but will do so respectfully. Yeah, yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit about some of the other work you've done with Nelson Nygaard and some of the other. I saw you give a talk. We were both together in Oklahoma a few weeks back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you gave a talk on parking. It was really great. I mean, it's a great talk. Uh, it's a difficult subject to make interesting. I think you're giving a similar talk here at CNU. I am. What What is the What's the cliff notes for like the overview? <laughs> um, because we have, you know. Every city I go to has a huge parking problem in that culturally they believe they don't have enough parking and physically they have vastly way too much parking. And more parking than they will ever need in the history of their could, know, could, the, the whole future of their city. Could potentially ever make use of. Yeah. 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 So uh, parking is an interesting topic to me um, in part because it so clearly exposes our cognitive dissonance on the way we think about cities. Yeah. Right? So I love going to, you know, t- to visit my libertarian clients in a place like Orange County. Yeah. You know, who believe that, you know, that government involvement should be minimal and that the market is the solution to all of our problems. And then they say that, well, except on the topic of parking, government <laughs> has to set, you know, minimum production thresholds and force the private market to produce more parking than the market would ever warrant and to deliver this very expensive commodity uh, to the consumer for free, unlike every other commodity in society. Um, and so, like, watching my libertarian clients be- <laughs> I, I become love that, Soviet yeah. communists right. for this one commodity, <laughs> for no other commodity in society. Right, right. 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 Like... No, it's it's very true. It, it's it's all of a sudden all of our principles just go out the door, right. and it's like no, we, we you know this is a this is a necessary public good. That's right. And when you look at the economics of it, it's it's obscene. It's yeah. If if people understood, like I I have had my driver's license since the day of my sixteenth birthday. 
I got my first car with my life savings on my 17th birthday, and I've been driving ever since. I love driving. <laughs> we have similar life stories. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and I also appreciate, you know, the, I also observe my own irrational behavior when I when I drive around in circles to to get that, you know, Marilyn Monroe front door parking space. Even yeah. though if I I know that if I would have just parked a little bit farther away, I would arrive at my destination sooner. Right. right. I observe my own irrationality on this topic. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's, I, I appreciate that there's something about parking that speaks to a very primal part of our brains, right? It makes us literally crazy. There are things that we do when we're trying to find a parking space that we would never do in any other parts of our lives. Right. 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 And there's this kind of collective feeling that, it's okay for us to be crazy on this topic. Like we're, there's this sense of bonding because we can complain about parking. Right. 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 And so, you know, you'll go to uh, a downtown and everyone will say, you know, it's impossible to park here. We have, we're having a parking crisis. You count the numbers. And of course there's three times more parking spaces than are ever used. <laughs> right. But you know, they're, they're half a block away and around the corner. Yeah. Right. And so there's this, feeling like it's a threat to my status yeah. if I don't get the front door space. Right. And like I don't even want to think about driving, you know, around the corner. Or um or or the part of the brain that only that is programmed to remember the bad experience and is programmed to forget the ninety nine percent of the time when we have a good experience. And so, you know, like biologically it serves us well that when we've suffered, that is what steps forward into our memory and colors all the rest of our experience. Right. Yeah, we don't remember the time, you know, the five times we got the spot right up by the door. We just remember the one time we had to circle five times and then park, you know, 20 the spaces indignity. in. Right. Like, how could this possibly happen in a civilized country? Do you people know who I am? Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. I see the same thing with, you know, congestion. E even when even when congestion is, like in my hometown where we have zero congestion, mm -hmm. when congestion is caused by like a traffic accident, somehow that is indignant as well. It's like, yeah. well, you know, couldn't that have happened? It, it, you know, if we had one more lane, it, it, I could have gotten around this and I wouldn't have suffered that you know, two-minute delay. That's right. Shouldn't we be tripling my taxes so that all highways can be three <laughs> times wider than they need to be right. just in case right. there's something that Aren't I already us? paying all, you know, that's the disconnect, right? Yeah. Um, you've done some work with performance metrics. I have. And I, I want to give you a chance to just talk about that because performance metrics are one of those, uh, kind of like parking, one of those geeky things, Right. But it's one of those things that I think for policy people and non-policy people are, 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 is a really important tool. Could you just elaborate a little bit on... Sure. So, you know, every community that I go and work in, uh, they have typically a very clear sort of vision and set of values. You know, we want it to be walkable and we want, you know, kids to be happy and healthy and we want to, you know, reduce our emissions and all of this good mother and apple pie stuff. And then I go and I look at their rules and regulations and performance metrics. And in every city I have ever worked in in North America, there is a direct contradiction yeah. between what the place says they value and want and how they measure success. Yeah. And so, you know, in transportation... Which seems so ridiculous, right? It seems like it should be against the law, yeah. right? You should yeah. <laughs> require that your rules and regulations actually support your policies. Right. 
Um, but in transportation, they never do. Right. Right. So in the world of transportation, there is one performance metric uh, that most places use to measure the success of everything that transportation is trying to do, and that is intersection level of service, mm -hmm. which is a calculation that tries to estimate the average seconds of delay that a car experiences in the peak hour at an intersection. So level of service A through F, you know, with the implication being that level of service F, like on your daughter's right. elementary school report card, is, is not good. Is failure. Yep. Right. And level of service A, like awesome, good right. job, right. local traffic engineer. Yeah. Right. You, you win. You yeah. win. Right. Um, You're going to Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a it's a useful metric. You know, mm -hmm. it's a useful metric for deciding how to optimize flow in a you know in a car system. Mm -hmm. But it has some unintended negative consequences. One consequence is that if you have a bus with forty people on it, those people are valued at one fortieth the value. Uh, as a person driving alone in a car right. because it's a measure of not person delay but vehicle delay. Right. Um, similarly, if you're a pedestrian or a bicyclist, you don't exist at all. Right. You're, you're, you your delay. Matter. Right. Exactly. Blah, like whatever. And, you know, also because it only measures the peak of the peak, it ignores what happens during the rest of the day. Right. It doesn't help you answer the question, how long does it take to drive from A to B? Or what is that driving experience like? Mm -hmm. it, it's an isolated metric. Um, and it also then says that if you have a threshold, if you say, well, you know, our minimum level of service that we're looking for is you know, C or D, the response, if you have a level of service problem, you've got two choices. One, if you're doing a development review, and this is the preferred response, is to move that development farther away. So if you're a development project and you're doing a building in a like a downtown where there's existing traffic, right. that's always bad from a level of service perspective. Right. Right? Always much better to move that development farther away. Way, way, where way level of service is still good, where there's plenty of capacity. Yeah, right? Yeah. Right. But that doesn't Really take into account the fact that now you've made people drive farther. Right. And they're probably still going to be driving through that intersection that you're <laughs> yeah. concerned about. Yeah. But they're no longer part of the analysis. Right? <laughs> we could discount them right. with our model. So, right. so that's one response for level yeah. service. The other response is, so, okay, I've got, you know, oh, level service D, I've got to mitigate this. And so the, the proper mitigation is to widen the intersection, you know, put in the double or triple left turn lane or add a lane, make, just make the intersection bigger, cram more cars through, right? right? Good level service gets great. However, you know, we've just made it a lot more difficult to walk or bike or right. take transit because right. you can't take transit if you can't walk across the street to the bus stop. Right. So what we find is that over-reliance on this single metric is not uh, solving our congestion problem, it's exacerbating our congestion problem. Right. Because it's not the development that is actually causing that traffic, it's the fact that we're making it impossible for people to do anything other than drive. Yeah. So I think that level of service is a useful tool, but on its own, it is a destructive tool to every goal that any community that I have ever worked in has tried to create. It stands against walkability, bikeability, and transit. It stands against efforts to reduce regional traffic because it's exacerbating regional traffic 
in order to try to solve a localized problem. It stands against economic development opportunity because we're wasting money widening roads and making it impossible for downtowns to actually function like downtowns function. It stands against social equity by, by harming uh, people of lower incomes, people with disabilities, children, older people. Uh, it stands against our efforts to reduce CO2 emissions uh, or reduce air pollution. Pretty much anything. We have this long, yeah. Yes, right? Yeah. So I look at transportation not as an end in itself, but as an investment strategy. Transportation is an investment strategy that allows cities and places to achieve their economic development goals, improve quality of life, um, improve public health, um, uh, improve social equity, um, pretty much anything that a community wants to better or anything that a community wants to become. Transportation needs to support that. Mm -hmm. And unless we are measuring exactly the degree to which transportation is supporting or harming a community's goals, um, it gets ignored. Right. What's the response you get? Let me, let me parse that into two segments. What's the response you get from public officials, and what's the response you get from technical professionals? Well, from public officials, I, I mostly get this sort of dumbfounded stare at first, and then this realization. Like, like duh, okay. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, of course. Right, transportation is transformative. It's really important. And, you know, just like it never occurred to me this that that the transportation industry has more control over public health outcomes than the medical industry does. Right. 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 And we're not measuring that. That's important to measure. Right. So uh, I think one of the things that they also realize is, oh, I, as a policymaker, am actually the one who's responsible for establishing performance metrics, not my local traffic engineer. Right. Right. That's the job, not of the traffic engineer, but of the, the mayor and the city council. Yeah. They establish policy. They establish metrics. They're responsible. Right. And, and the world of traffic engineering, our profession does such a good job of obfuscating. We try to pretend yeah. like what we do is super complicated <laughs> and like really scientific. Right. And we have all these words and acronyms right. that we use. Oh, and these tables. And tables. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, Manuals. you know, on page 3,472 right. of the manual, right. you know, blah, 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 blah. Right. Uh, and, and, the, and the council members don't want to look like idiots, right? So they right. like smile oh, yeah. like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the intersection doesn't work. Right. Like, well, it has to work. Right. Right. Or it's not safe. Right. Like, oh, yeah, we don't, we don't want the children to die. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, a part of our effort as well is getting citizens and policymakers to understand the language of transportation. Sure. And to realize that, in fact, they're in charge. Right. And in fact, that makes the job of the local traffic engineer a lot easier. Because yeah. the poor local traffic engineers are in this terrible position where the regulations that have been established by the council, that they're forced to adhere to by law. Right. Right? Right. That there's a contradiction between policy and the regulations, and the poor local engineer is trapped in that. Is cut in the middle. Right. Yeah. And and doesn't understand why citizens, you know, are yelling at her because right. she was required to widen the roadway. You know, that, that's what she was required to do. Right. Right. So do the engineers at the end of the day, I mean, the, the, I've seen this where the, the good ones are actually thankful for the reshape policy or the, the redefined policy so that their stuff aligns essentially with what we're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. You know, at most people who become engineers, like at their hearts, they're made happy by building stuff. Yeah. Right. 
you know, yeah. they, most of them don't want to get involved in the, the, the messiness of the policymaking stuff. Right. So if, if the rules and the policies can be in alignment, right. that means they can build stuff in a more predictable, more cost-effective, uh, more timely sort of way, and in a way that makes citizens actually happy and grateful yeah. for their excellent work. Right. right. Good performance metrics allow engineers to do what they're best at. Yeah, perfect. Um, Jeff Tumlin? Thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. I'm glad that we were able to arrange this. Uh, we should keep in touch and do a longer podcast again when we got, we got more to talk about. I'm sure we do. I'd love to. I love your work. I think uh, your organization is fantastic. Thank you. We're having a lot of fun. Good. Enjoy the rest of your CNU. America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.